The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? By the 1970s, famed director Fred Zinnemann had largely lost faith in the Hollywood studio system. But when Universal offered him a chance to direct a suspense film where everyone already knows the ending, he just couldn't resist the challenge. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. It is time to talk about the mother of all modern assassin movies, The Day of the Jackal, in this episode of Spies Like Us. The Day of the Jackal is a 1973 film, uh, historic fiction, so it's got a historic set, very historic setting, but uh, the actual events we're going to talk about in the movie didn't necessarily occur. Um, the events were shown occur in uh, 1962 and 1963, although uh, many critics noticed that there was no attempt to make it look like 1963. Everything in the movie, like clothes, hairstyles, cars, everything is pure 1973. Not only that, everybody's got a British accent, and they're supposed to be French. <laughs> that drove me crazy. I was going nuts. I, I thought these were all British people, and then I realized, oh, they're French. And then real British people came, and they hit, yeah. I actually kind of thought, like, the real British people just went out of their way to be extra British. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just be I, like, I could just imagine the director. I want you to be as British as possible. Right. You, right. I want you to be French. Oh, like this. Yes. Just like that. <laughs> like that's, a, that's how I feel the direction went. Uh, featured agencies. Uh, we have the French S D E C E, which is featured, but not, not explicitly named, but that would be the agency that, uh, would, would be involved here. Uh, that's an agency that, uh, dates back to 1944 as, uh, so many, uh, Western powers, intelligence agencies do have their roots in the great war. And uh, was actually founded by Charles de Gaulle, the assassination target in the film. I looked him up. He has like a crazy military record. We are going to have some fun talking about some Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some Chuck, Chuck DG would be his, his, uh, his rapper name. <laughs> uh, several people in this film refer to de Gaulle's security service as being like the best in the world. Uh, you know, which could just be for, you know, dramatic tension of the movie. But uh, it is true that uh, he founded kind of a side project from the SDECE called the uh, SAC, the Service d'Action Civique, which was a linked organization that seemed to be uh, mostly about like uh, spying on and thwarting the attempts of his political opponents. It's kind of like his internal security. So when oh. I when they when they talk about him having the best security service in the world, I think I think they're talking about that the SAC. Again, oh, okay. not explicitly named, but it 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 fits the history. For the record, the SDEC was reformed as the DGSE in 1981, and that is the current form of French intelligence. We're also going to see the French OAS in action, which uh, was a revolutionary terrorist force 
pretty much dedicated to dethroning de Gaulle. It seems pretty highly probable in my mind that it it, it most of the OAS members are uh, former or disgruntled SDECE members. And yeah, they were all pretty much former uh, SDECE or military even. Um, in, in the film, they kind of point out that, uh, oh, we, we this is uh, we'll get there, but this is like after the independence of Algeria. So these are the guys trying to prevent that or are mad at that because they watched all their men die. So these are all disgruntled, like you said, SDECE or disgruntled military or special forces type guys. For right now, I just wanted to flag that uh, this is an interesting case where, as opposed to like a lot of our classic Cold War movies, you have the CIA versus the KGB. It's one country versus another. In this right. case, it's kind of more like uh, um, a mutant splinter arm of one intelligence agency has turned around and gone after its parent. Like the call, the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. Kind of situation. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Um, in fact, uh, just from what I read, I mean, I actually got instantly excited when I started looking into even, I mean, we don't go into a huge, a lot of detail on these intelligence agencies in this movie, but just cause I wanted to look them up and I got so excited about it. I really wanted to start looking around, casting around for a movie that focused on them because, uh, I think their history is very interesting. And that's why you're proposing that uh, right after our anniversary episode, we're going to do Battle of Algiers. Yes. I'm very excited for that one. So it's going to be a kind of a weird order because uh, Battle of Algiers is is pretty much like the events that are, it's going to deal with events that precipitated the events that we see in the Day of the Jackal. And uh, also just, you know, like to flag the, agencies that we're going to see we're also going to see some of scotland yard's special branch uh special branch we've discussed slightly before that's a concept that is invented by when you say special branch you could most often be talking about the british special branch because they're the one that ones that invented this concept but currently there are i don't know 30 countries out there that have what they call a special branch and that's usually or essentially like the arm of the police that's tasked with uh, intersecting with the na- uh, the national intelligence agencies. Um, I guess like if you have an international fugitive in your country, you don't just want your intelligence guys, your main spies going after him. You want to employ the police as well, right? Right. That would, that would be the special branch. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, It's based on a novel. This movie is by Frederick Forsyth. Uh, He's not exactly John Cray, but he's not Chopped Liver either. Uh, No. (laughs) He did did quite a lot of spy uh, novels, and more than a dozen of his have been made into movies. This is the most popular of them. Uh, The director, uh, I lost, I believe his first name was Herman. Don't quote me on that, but last name, definitely Zinnemann, uh, who's famous for being one of the first directors to uh, insist on using authentic locations instead of sound stages or, you know, for instance, right. pretending that, uh, you know, Palm Beach is 
Saudi Arabia. <laughs> uh, he's got some crazy high-profile uh, other movies on his on his resume. Uh, he's responsible for High Noon, From Here to oh. Eternity, and uh, one of my mother's favorites of all time, Oklahoma. Ooh. And I think we could also like give a little applause for uh, Mr. Zinneman for uh, being the official guy that discovered both Marlon Brando and Meryl Streep. Oh wow! So definitely those are some an eye pretty hefty talent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, those are not lightweight uh, performers. Right. Like even if I even if as a director I went to my grave and like nobody liked any of my movies, I would still be like, Hey assholes, I'm the guy that found Brando and Streep, so right. fucking have some respect. <laughs> right. Uh the movie didn't do quite as well as he had wished. Um he was he was pretty keen on uh casting in a relative unknown as the jackal uh and uh what's his name call it um what's his name edward fox yeah edward fox he was relatively unknown at the time uh but uh the studios had pitched like um oh i forget exactly who they uh some of them had wanted jack nicholson and some other actors of that kind of caliber and uh i also noticed that robert shaw wanted the role and and tried to get it but the guy really wanted someone that was kind of unknown. And I think that go, I think that was a smart decision. Right. Because the whole idea of the Jackal is that he is, you know, unknown. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would have been weird with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I don't, I would, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to see Jack Nicholson try to play a British guy. <laughs> No. no, especially since we had so many British people playing French people. Uh, Michael Lonsdale plays the basically the antithesis of the Jackal. Uh, this is his second appearance on this podcast, and he's going to hit number three really soon. Because, uh, let's see, he was our French guy in Munich. He was Papa. Uh, he's the grizzled old kind of Gandalf of the spy industry and in Ronin, which we're going to do soon. And we okay. came within a whisker when we were doing our, uh, picking our Roger Moore, uh, version of bond. We came within a whisker of picking Moonraker. And if we had done that by the time we get to Ronin, which is coming real soon, that would have been putting Michael Lonsdale in four of the movies that we've covered. Uh, cause he's, oh. the, he's the villain in Moonraker. Oh, he's actually French. Yes, he is. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> well, that's plus movie points for having a French guy play a French guy. Didn't know yeah. we needed an award for that. <laughs> a French guy with very, very wet, sad hound dog eyes. Yeah. He definitely uh, looks like a detective. Yeah, he looks he looks like he doesn't get nearly enough sleep, which which <laughs> is always a good look for a, for a detective in these kind of movies. I uh, didn't, the last thing I wanted to mention about the movie itself before we get into the briefing room and start talking about Tradecraft, uh, I'll just ask you really quick. Did you, did the clocks, did you trigger on the clocks? What do you mean? It's every, like every, 
I clocked it. Sorry for the bad pun. Uh, there are like every five minutes, there's a clock in the frame. Like every time they switch to a new scene, they always do it with a close up of a clock. Somebody, oh. somebody <laughs> did the work of counting it out. It's 31, 31 clock close ups in this film, which is an average of one per 4.5 minutes. Oh, Just wow. Worth, worth mentioning. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, a lot of times that they're not exactly giving you exact information. I mean, they could, if you're really paying attention, because some uh, strange, I mean, some things obviously have a lot to do with time, you know, right. like how long ago did you see him? When will this train get to this station? It's yes. I understand it's three o'clock where you are, <laughs> <laughs> but I need some information now where I am. Uh, right. But just, but just overall, I liked it in that just this repeated motif of clock, clock, like one every 4.5 minutes is, is how it clocks in. Uh, again, That's a lot. Sorry, sorry for the pun. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very distinctive. And I liked it. I think it low key gave a sense of, I don't know, even just by just being reminded of time over and over and over that, that time right. is of the essence and time is running well, all those like, uh, like super, like the headquarters of investigation type shots. They had all of like the World Times, you know, like New uh-huh. York and London. And there was that one room that they shot a couple times where they had like thirty clocks on the wall to to show you what time it was in what yeah, country. Yeah, you wanted to know in yeah in every in every country of interest. And um, that's our notes for the movie. Let's hit up the briefing room and talk some tradecraft. Sounds good. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Now, with all necessary apologies for not being a, a pure historian or even like a very serious history buff, uh, uh, this uh, Charles de Gaulle who is the assassination target in our movie. The first time I ever heard of him uh, was literally in the board game Twilight Struggle, which is a game Dave and I have played uh, many times and highly recommend. It's a game about the the Cold War. And in that game, he comes up as a Soviet card as opposed to a U.S. card. And um, it's a Soviet card which removes two U.S. influence from France, adds one Soviet influence, and cancels effects of the NATO card for France. That's the effects of playing the card. And the game also gives historical text for each of their cards. And I think it gives a really good summary of, uh, you know, just Charles de Gaulle in brief. And I'm just going to quote from the board game rulebook. Uh, founder of France's Fifth Republic, de Gaulle's role during the Cold War is generally viewed through the lens of his second presidency. While still a Western ally, de Gaulle attempted to establish France as an independent voice within the confines of the Western camp. He developed an independent nuclear deterrent and withdrew from NATO's unified command. This this is really important to talk about as far as who he is, because you don't see him much in the film, but he's the the assassination target. Um, and this is really important, uh, mainly because the 
he granted the independence of Algeria. And if you don't understand or know what that's all about, um, basically sometime around 1830, France invaded Algeria and like colonized it. And if you want to understand the bad blood between these two countries and why the revolution uh, for Algeria's independence happened, uh, it like just think Spain and South America. Like they just mowed down all of their leaders and raped all the women and rode off on all the horses type of thing. Um, so the, the colonization of Algeria over that period of time um, created a lot of animosity. So when the uprising of um, Algeria to, to fight, and I think it was like eight years, um, the, there was all, and like like we said, we're probably going to talk about the Battle of Algiers. Right. When, next oh, okay. So, you, I mean, you said they first invaded in 1830. When you say eight years, you're talking about like the most recent eight years. Which right, correct. Like but prior to the film, yeah. Prior to the film, it took eight years for them to gain their independence. And we're talking uh, that uprising. Something like 50, 54 to 62, around there. Yeah, something like that. Like in the 1950s, like the Battle of Algiers, which we're going to talk about next episode, was in 1956 to 1957. So, uh, but th- this film takes place right after de Gaulle. Uh, granted independence to Algeria. And De Gaulle is a target of the OAS mainly because um, to him, he wanted, he liked the idea of independence. And so he didn't want any colonies. And so the OAS is made up of these like disgruntled French intelligence, French special forces, military guys that are, you know, they're described as right wing nationalists that are really angry. And in the film, it's kind of portrayed that like, hey, our men died fighting the Algerians and now de Gaulle wants to give them, you know, all this like free independence and stuff like that. Forget that. They were the the Algerians during their revolution were just as brutal back to the France. Not that, you know, we should really fault them considering their colonization, but it's just so you know that there's a lot of bad blood going on between these two militaries. So a lot of the OAS is just really pissed off that they gave up their lives and their men died and all that stuff to prevent the independence of Algeria. And here de Gaulle is just like granting them independence after such a brutal war. Yeah. Apparently they even went so far in, in, in to commit a large number of bombings and murders in France to try mm-hmm. to stop the independence from happening. So these guys were like, yeah, not happy. No, not not at all. And so that's where we start the film is after the independence had been granted, the OAS has decided to try and target de Gaulle. And, you know, I think it starts out with their first attempt, which fails mainly because uh, they tried to hit like a moving car. It wasn't really well planned out. And I think the film did a good job of pointing that out. You know, there's this kind of cool little signal from one of the OAS members for a bunch of guys with machine guns. And they're like submachine guns. So like I, I believe De Gaulle could have survived that. And it sounds like that actually happened. I think this is the only historical moment in the film. Yeah, it's is that yeah, failed assassination yeah, this, attempt. This this part is is total history. Um so we can compare uh, you know briefly like what we know from history and what we see in the film. It's not too different. I mean, one of my first thoughts just watching the movie, you know, because we, we have the Lonsdale voiceover that's like 
140 shots were fired and seven <laughs> hit, hit the car or pierced the car, which my thought was like, wait a second, you shot 140 shots and only seven hit the car. Like, wow, that, that right. sounds pretty lousy. Uh, the wiki will give you from the historical event, uh, a 187 shots fired. Uh, even though it's, Oh, let's see. Uh, 14 pierced the car. It's still not great numbers, but I think maybe it's not so much that they were just missing like crazy that, uh, maybe that the, the car was just that well, heavily armored, even two of them, two bullets hit the tires. Uh, but those were, those were also armored and, and didn't slow it down, which brings me though to my other like thing, which definitely from what I'm seeing in the movie, you know, the car's driving really fast. Yeah. Thing. And, you know, even just right after they open fire, like it's at a, it's at an intersection, another car, like just happens to like spill into the intersection, like immediately after. I really think like they could have made some kind of attempt to like block or stop the car. Just fucking pull a truck out. Right. Know? Yeah, exactly. Or push, push a car out there or something. Cause right. yeah, yeah. And then, and then they would have got him. Yeah. Um, yeah, super, super, fa- super famous at the time. Like this was a, this was an assassination attempt that the entire world, uh, you know, was hitting in their headlines. And um, the uh, ringleader uh, we see in the movie, just as in reality, he was uh, captured and executed by a firing squad and happens to have the, oh, whatever, uh, the dubious honor of being the last person to ever be executed by a firing squad in France. Oh, wow. Nice. And that pretty much gives all of our setup of, Uh like, what the OAS is trying to do and why. And I think putting, you know, just giving us this scene in the movie was a pretty expedient way of just uh, uh, putting us giving us at least as much information as we need. Obviously you and I had a lot of fun, like finding out like what was really going on, but consider in 1973 audiences like already knew, like they were Mm -hmm. there, you know, this stuff was a lot more fresh in their memories. It had only happened 10 years ago for them. Right. Whereas for us, this is like 50, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, um, so then I think our next, our next section, I think, I think we got a good, I think we got a good plan for how to, how to work this out. I want to talk about the planning, starting with the OAS's decision to use a contract killer. And I want to follow the jackal and just the jackal all the way up to the hotel scene where, uh, I think we'll stop we'll rewind and then go revisit the investigation. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, The OAS is obviously, uh, they're dejected. You know, they just lost a critical man. They lost, apparently, like by an inch, a chance to achieve their goal of killing de Gaulle. And they're making this decision that they, um, you know, someone has the idea, we need to bring in a foreigner somebody that nobody knows because yeah well they had already been heavily infiltrated by government spies themselves 
like even though these guys are ex intelligence ex military or whatever they, they were kind of messy from what we've read and and it was well established in the film they had already been infiltrated by uh like government agents so the idea of picking a foreigner is actually massive plus spy points and like right because it, to my mind it seems like the OAS and the SDECE are just so intertwined kind of right. you know like like these are these are people that know each other you know that have yeah. relationships <laughs> with each other it's it's so easily possible that you know uh i could be SDECE and you could be OAS and 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 you and me having beers together or working side by side at the in the same office and me not know that you're OAS. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's that's why that's why we like that's why we like this uh plus spy points for, you know, picking an outsider. Because uh -huh. again, like like we said before, like this is you know, the calls coming from this is an internal affair between the OAS and the S D E C E. Uh so an outsider makes makes super sense. Um the Jackal says, this is the guy they bring in. Um, we we never find out his real name. We're, we're just going to call him the Jackal. Um, you know, he uh, they invite him to a, a, a secret meeting in Venice. Uh, he says, this is going to be tough. Uh, De Gaulle has the best security service in the world. Again, I think he's referring to the SAC. Also that he says, you know, hey, it's possible, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime job. Whoever does it is never going to be able to work again. So that's why he wants the princely sum of half a million dollars. Woohoo! Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> half now, half later. Yeah. Which seems which... to be an occurring theme. Half now, half later. <laughs> They also mentioned that's a large sum, uh, and and they're like, it's going to take a while. He was like, well, I need half now. And he's like, where are we going to get that money? He was like, well, you're the OAS. Have your people rob some banks. So I think, I think that's kind of funny that the OAS had to go rob banks to fund the assassin, like, deposit. Uh, that was kind of fun, so... Yeah, nice yeah. Little, nice, this whole movie has a lot of this-is-how-you-do-it moments. And I, and I think that's uh, very interesting because there's actually quite a bit I've read that had interesting funding sources for terrorist organizations or sometimes even government uh, covert operations. His his immediate instructions like like tell us like a lot about this guy. He's so on the case from second one. He says, look, I'm totally going to do it my way. And there's going to be after right now. There's going to be no connection between you and me at all. You're not going to hear from me. I'm not going to get instructions from you. We're not planning this together. This is just all my show. And the only thing, well, I need you to do two things. First of all, I need you guys to go into hiding and go into hiding in a place where none of you can possibly be captured because only you guys know about me and nobody else in the OAS is ever going to know about me and you guys need to not be captured. And if I hear any of you guys get captured, boom, I'm done. However, you are going to set up a phone number that I can call anytime I want. The person on the other end is going to give me any information you have on what they know about 
anything. That person should absolutely not know anything about who I am, what I am, etc. And uh, when he gets that phone number, uh, I think they mail it to him. He memorizes it, burns it. It's a uh, plus five points. That situation, this whole like compound, this is compartmentalization to the nth degree. And I yeah. think it's perfectly done. It makes my number two best tradecraft of the movie. Just the whole setup of the of the phone number, the one-way communication uh, where he can find out what they know without ever having to come into direct contact with them. Not sure why he needs a code name, though, if they're not going to be in communication. I guess if they talk to each other, they don't want to call him, like, Duggan. They don't I call him Jackal. I, I, I agree. It's minus spy points because it's not necessary, except as a, a movie convention. Right. Um, but yeah, if they're never going to talk to him, then what does he need a code name for? He really doesn't. Right. Once the Jackal has accepted the assignment, uh, you know, pretty much the movie can get into gear. And uh, really, like, part of the whole appeal of this movie is just watching him operate and make all of his plans. Yeah. And how he kind of starts is he starts watching, you know, the various locations and uh, more importantly, he kind of spots a guy at the airport that is around his size and build. And he steals his, uh, it's a guy with glasses. He steals his passport so that he can look like the guy. Um, in case you're thinking, like, well, why don't you report the passport stolen? That actually does come up later. But this is one of the many little balls, one of the many things that gets the ball rolling. Um, and what he does is he goes to Geneva with the, or Genoa with the Duggan passport. Um, that's a different, that's a different passport. He's also, he's not only stolen one passport, he's, oh, uh, that's right. yeah, he's, he's began forging another identity uh the duggan identity is uh actually i think that's the first thing he does he visits a graveyard and he finds the headstone of a child that died shortly after birth but has a similar birthday of him Mm -hmm. i believe overall overall he's gonna have three identities and he's getting all of them ready in advance there's the duggan identity well, the first one, I guess, is to him to start the Duggan identity. And I, and one of the things I noticed with the passports is you need an entrance stamp and an exit stamp. And uh, there's, I, I think what he's doing is dodging certain entrance and exit stamps at the beginning so that he could manufacture this persona of Duggan and not have a trail behind Duggan. And um, so the, the idea of stealing the passport... Yeah, it does trigger some issues with the, for the investigation's help, but because it's separated from the Duggan persona, it, that's, that's what I was saying. It's kind of just getting the ball rolling for him and, okay. and finding the, the, the headstone and the birth certificate. And that's when he files to get a birth certificate and a passport and a, he gets some forged like driver's license stuff. All of this you know, is to, to create the Duggan persona. And he does as much as possible of it uh, by mail, you know, and, and not in person uh, right. from, from what I see. And he goes to Paris to kind of figure out where the shooting's probably going to take place. 
Uh, I really liked, you know, I'll probably, we'll talk more of this as it goes on, but the pre-planning that he goes through took like months. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the date of the shooting, um, uh, where he's going to shoot from, like everything was well pre-planned, which I guess for something, for a job of this caliber, you better have all your uh, ducks in a row because it's not going to work because you're going to have to go through a lot of improvisation on the way anyway. So you might as well try and, uh, you know, patch as many leaks as you can and, and maybe build like a really solid plan. A large um, amount of the first half of this movie, at least, is just watching him go through his meticulous planning. And I love every bit of it. Um, you mentioned that he travels to Paris so that he can, and that I believe is, yeah, I'm pretty sure is on the Duggan passport. Um, because later they're going to know that Duggan went to Paris and then went back to London and just hung out there for a while. Um, right. So, so that's, uh, you know, he's, he's got that one identity. Uh, the second identity is going to be Loomquist. That's the guy with glasses that he stole the passport from. And mm -hmm. the final identity is going to be of um, a wounded, like a uh, World War II army veteran. And I like the fact that he bought the disguise clothing for the war veteran while he was in Paris. Why I think that's interesting is because, well, for one thing, I don't know if they sell berets in London as much as right. they do in, in yeah. Paris. Yeah, right. <laughs> but also, I could be wrong about this, but I think that I think that clothing in the 1960s, especially in France, was like kind of more like a like a local operation. And, you know, like buying a French suit, a French suit and a French beret in London might not look as authentic as one that's like literally from this neighborhood, like from right, around yeah, the block. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, those like super crazy snipers. They're like really heavy camouflaged ones. They build their, their weed suits out of the plants in the area. Like I'm, I'm not going to take like you know, some pine <laughs> right, trees yeah. from the Midwest <laughs> and go out to like, you know, the middle East, you know, with some pine trees. Like I'm going to, I'm going to use like the brush and shrubbery and stuff of the, of the land. So that, so picking clothes from London, pretending to be French or semi French is going to look really different or stand out. If, except if you go to like a clothing store, like in Paris. So yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, one of the other things is the forger talks about using cordite to look sick and gray. He used to do it in the military when they wanted to get out of duty. You'd feel sick for about an hour, but then you'd feel great. But you would still look gray for the rest of the day. This is going to be big later. So he ends up buying all this cool stuff for like dyeing his hair and uh, you know, uh, you know, just changing his appearance. And you know, he's going to go through a few different identities. After he gets all his makeup stuff, he goes back to the forger to get the documents that he had forged. And this is where the forger has, uh, before he left the forger originally, he said, look, I'm going to need all those pictures back and all those documents I gave you back. And when he gets back to pay the forger, the other half, because, you know, half now, half later, like all over, uh, the forger's like, hey, remember those pictures and that stuff you wanted back? I hid them somewhere. Here's the key. 
And I think what you have is probably got to be worth a thousand pounds. You know, and he begins to like blackmail the jackal. Um, and the the jackal, the, there's a couple things I want to talk about this, but number one, I want to flag this as my number three worst trade craft. Not only is it bad for business, you know, like you're obviously in like a black market, like forging documents business. I'm sure you're not like doing work for like, you know, nuns here. Like, you know, you're doing work for some shady people. You should know not to mess with these guys that you're you're selling these like documents to. Um, plus, word's going to get out in the like canals of the black market that you kind of like are blackmailing people. But number two, uh, it, it's just a bad idea because, you know, you don't know who this guy is and it sounds pretty serious. And I think he's like more focused. His greed's getting the best of him. Uh, so that's why I made my number three worst tradecraft. But after the blackmail, the jackal kind of plays it like, okay, yeah, you're right. They're valuable. A thousand pounds sounds fair. And uh, so... All right, well, we'll, we'll go meet somewhere else. And, and the forger's like, no, no, we'll meet here. This is a very private place. No one knows about it unless I bring them here. Aha. Uh, so this is where the jackal goes, aha, this is a nice place to kill someone. And he, and he makes the forger feel very comfortable, kills the guy and stuffs him in a bag. And I was like, well, what about all this stuff? And I was like, wait a minute. If it's in a hidden location and there's only one key, right, he doesn't have to worry about anybody getting the pictures or documents. They're locked away somewhere safe. And now he's eliminated somebody that knows him. But one thing I wanted to ask, like, do you think the Jackal, when he goes, oh, we got to meet somewhere else, was he trying to elicit about whether or not this would be a good place to kill the guy? I didn't think that. But, uh, you know, after you mentioned it, I looked at the scene again, and I think I think you're correct. This is the level of an assassin we're talking about here, just so you know. And I just want to throw in my quick, uh, plus five points on the jackal on this one for the fact that you know he's getting paid a half a million, a thousand pounds. Eh, it's it's worth it, you know. Right. But I think the jackal is smart to kill this guy because he's he's proven himself untrustworthy, and yeah. I think the jackal also knows like you know if I pay the thousand, then the guy could you know then then the guy really knows he's got something on the hook. Right. Make it keep coming back, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Uh, trustworthy, though, is the gunmaker. Although, <laughs> quick note, I think there's some discussion uh, uh, on on whether or not the jackal killed the gunmaker in the novel. But uh, the gunmaker in the movie uh, definitely seems like a stand-up guy. Um, very professional. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, yeah. Um, I love I love the questions he asks, like what's the range you need? Like what's the range? What's the situation? Blah blah blah. Moving you know, target, stationary. Right. Are the you making taking the shot? Certain uh, the jackal makes a certain suggestion about the kind of gunpowder, and the guy says, "Oh no 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 no, you don't want that. You're gonna want this." Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a a gun uh, expert at all, but uh. A couple, a couple people did not like the idea of using explosive rounds in this situation, uh, right. saying that that would be extra weight in the bullet, which would impair accuracy, and um, and also it's it's funny because like um, the the bullets he uses at the end, like they don't actually explode, 
Right. So, <laughs> except except for getting the cool melon exploding scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know the the um, the exploding rounds were possibly not super realistic, but uh, I don't. I can't. I can't comment directly on that one. I do love that scene. I I don't know what it is about it, but that scene where the uh, the jackal takes his his new toy out, where he buys a melon from the market yeah. and right. in his sights. <laughs> I I distinctly remember. I don't even remember when I first saw this movie. I think I was like watching it like on IMDb, like super late at night, and just kind of like, oh, this this is kind of cool or whatever, but. Right. For some reason, this, this sequence was when I really started to sit forward and pay attention. It's a cool, it's a cool scene. I enjoy it. It's it's fun. But what I really liked was him hiding the rifle in the car parts. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He he rents a car. It's like a nice little you know sports car, and like there's some pipes. I I don't know anything about cars, but like under the car, there's some pipes that he kind of cuts out and hides them in there, which is important for him to get across the border later. Yeah, and and you know, this it's a it's a genius it's a genius gun. Um, you know, that's that's super like lightweight. It's not meant to carry you through a, a campaign. It's not right. meant to carry you into combat. It's just meant to be like incredibly concealable and just mm-hmm. do one job at at yeah. one moment in time. It's great. It's a great gun. That's that's pretty much all of his like major preparations. He needs the gun and he needs uh to prepare his three identities. And again, also he's scouted out uh the location where he's gonna make the hit. And he's also uh stolen uh an impression of a key mm-hmm. for uh, a hotel room. And so yeah. He's got all that in play and he's gonna eventually, again, this is like months have passed. All of his preparations have been made. He heads into France, Ascot at the ready. <laughs> he does like I, his Ascots. He's, he's, he's definitely into Ascots and I don't, I, mm, I want to, yeah, a little bit. Like, okay, he doesn't use he doesn't wear the ascots in his second disguise, so at least he doesn't do that or his third. Right. <laughs> but he was wearing an ascot when he was like just just the jackal in the uh-huh. first place, and he also wears it like all through his Duggan identity. Uh huh. Um. Yeah, we'll live with it. He crosses the border using the Duggan passport. And that's the that's his first identity. Uh, he makes his check to the special number that he special phone number that he has previously prepared, where they will give him any information about what's going on. And here he hears that his identity has been blown. He actually they say the jackal has been blown, which is lame because nobody was yeah. supposed to know the name jackal. But right. it really should have been like the Duggan identity has been blown. Right. But uh, despite knowing that, I mean, he is within France. He still has a choice. He could still get out, but uh, he's still got confidence in, in himself. And we've got confidence in him as an audience. And we don't want him to flee. We want him to go for it. 
Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but this is this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna vote that we leave the jackal alone for a bit and go back and talk about the investigation. The reason is because right now, when he finds out that his Duggan passport has been exposed, this is the first time where he might need to start improvising. Everything up until now has just been him just going like one, two, three, four, everything according to plan. Right. But before we get to that, there's, there's also this tiny little subplot uh, of the movie with uh, Denise. You want to tell us about that one? Denise is sent by the OAS to kind of uh, seduce one of the ministry. Just so the audience knows, you know, the, the idea of an assassination attempt on De Gaulle has gotten to the government and there's just a room full of government people, military, civic, whatever, uh, that are involved in this. And there's, I don't know, it looks like maybe like 12 of them. And they elicit a, a, a detective commissioner guy to, to be on the case, which we'll talk about later. But aside from that, the OAS is going to use this lady, Denise, who's been for the cause for a long time and they can trust her and whatever and blah, 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 blah. And they send in her to seduce Sinclair, uh, which is going to be very important later. Um, and I don't know. We were talking about this meet cute moment. Everybody knows when you've seen a romance or like a rom-com, that moment where the couple meets, like that's apparently called a meet cute. And I didn't, I didn't know about that, but her plan was to have her dog walk in and he rides a horse every once in a while somewhere. And the dog was going to scare the horse and he's going to fall off. We talked about this. This could go wrong a lot of ways. Yeah, like I don't think I don't think injured. I don't think it's good, right? Yeah, he could have been. It's not a situation that's easily controllable. Like once the dog right. and the horse start interacting, like you're right, he could have been seriously injured. He could yeah. have been <laughs> seriously fucking pissed. Yeah, right. Like, what are you doing, you dumb bitch? Get your dog out of here or something, right? Right. He could have just went psycho on her. And like, then, and then you would have lost your opportunity. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe she's smart enough. Maybe if, even if you, now I'm thinking it through again, like maybe she's probably done this a thousand times to do Maybe if he, even she's got a backup plan, like maybe if he is really, really pissed, like she's good enough to know that like showing up with like sending some flowers and an apology. Yeah. Right. She can still like worm her way in. Maybe. Right. Yeah. 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 But uh, I, I still want to give it minus five points for this is a this is a this very, is a very hazardous. Yeah, endeavor. right. Yeah. <laughs> but she definitely, you know, gets in and continues the seduction. And um, there's this like shot when she's first sleeping with him and he's like, oh, I'm having a terrible day. It's a crisis. And she's like, what crisis? He's like, no, I can't talk about it. And she's like, what crisis? And she kisses him. It's like. Yeah, like so she's obviously putting on the 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 eye eye blinks and the soft moves and stuff, uh, which we find out is gonna be a problem later. But the idea is she's been feeding the info she's getting from Sinclair to the OAS. So Sinclair is unknowingly a leak for the what are we calling them ministers? We're just gonna yeah, call just, them the ministers. Just minister with a small M. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh but that's that's the idea, which I mean, massive plus five points for the OAS planning a girl uh, to one of the ministers to to kind of get some info. Um, 
Yeah, but uh, I think later on this makes my number three worst. Or, or is it my number one? No, it's my number one worst tradecraft. I have it down on my notes. I probably mentioned it again. But the, a, a guy like Sinclair at that level of government service is going to probably have the highest security clearances possible. They so train a good, you. A good for, target. Right. But they train you for exactly this, right? Yeah. You know, like, like you're not I, – I, it's hard for me to believe someone at that level is going to – like he might fall for a girl, right? But he's not going to like tell her stuff. He, he's already been briefed on this shit. You know what I mean? So – but master, this is going to be my number one worst tradecraft, which I'll talk about when it actually like becomes a problem later. But I'm, I'm pointing it out now. Uh, but that's Denise in a nutshell, and and I guess it's right. time. And that's to... and that's that's the procedure by which, like again, it was the Jackal's idea in the first place. But the OAS is playing ball according to his rules. Like they're going to get information. She doesn't know anything about the Jackal himself, but she's going to feed that to the OAS. They're going to feed it to another person in the OAS who also doesn't know anything about the assassination thing. And all that guy's job is like, if this phone rings. Just tell the person on the other side, like what the SGECE knows, right? Or what we tell you to tell him. Like it's a it's a relay of information, and it's broken up, so it's not like a direct chain, uh, which is good. This is how you're supposed to do it, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's pretty much Denise. So I don't know. Did you, you said you want to talk about the investigation, but I think we need to kind of point out some stuff about the identity theft. You know, a really interesting thing about the day of the Jackal is uh, this was actually the first movie to, or at least the first major movie to showcase identity theft, at least in the way that we would think of it in the modern day, like with the passport forging and stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could have movies where, like, someone, I don't know, murdered a count and, like, took over his castle and pretended to be the count or something. But, right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, this is, this is the first movie where audiences saw, like, this kind of um, paperwork shenanigans and, and what could be done. And Forsyth, the, the author of the novel researched it heavily. Um, and what he was finding out was alarming to him. <laughs> and he was sending, yeah. even while he was writing the novel, he was sending letters of caution to the British government, letting them know like, Hey guys, he might want to uh, just be aware that this kind right. of stuff is possible. And all that stuff was ignored until the movie came out. And then they tightened up their regulations on passports and like quite a bit in response to it being out there. Like it actually scared them to have this, uh, this information out there, which I think is, is going massively to the credit of the film and a, and a good reason to flag it as a nice historical piece and especially a piece that like is so important for us to cover on the spies like us podcast. Cause this is kind of a movie that like by its very nature of being made changed the rules of espionage in a certain way. Yeah. It's, I mean, like I was, 
it, it's really incredible how he handles all the passport stuff. And it's it, it I could see how this could be really scary once it's pointed out like, hey, this could easily happen. Um, one of the things I loved about the passport moves that he makes, uh, and this, in fact, made my number one best tradecraft. Not only did he use like a real birth certificate um, and use all this identity mail-in stuff and forged document stuff, uh, but he specifically applied for the passport during the holiday season. Um, so, I mean, the, the whole first passport thing is going to make my number one, but I wanted to point out the holiday season because, um, you know, during the investigation, it really slowed them down. Because they, they had to go and look at every single, like, uh, application for a new passport within the last three months. And it's like a big holiday where there's tons of tourism. And it's, it's like, do you know how many people are coming in from out of the country? You know, it's so I, want, I wanted to flag this as my number one best tradecraft because it, it really slows down the investigation, the timing of the year. You know, his entire plan throughout the whole film is very meticulously thought out as far as timing goes. And I think the idea of when he got his passport, you know, legitimately through fake documents and fake names was really important because for them to find that took them a lot of man hours. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, yeah, I really, and I really wanted to flag that. I like, I like that one. Um, yeah, I know. I, I remember what you're talking about, about the inspector, LaBelle or something complaining about like, oh, it's fucking holiday season. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We didn't get any direct evidence that that was the Jekyll's plan, but I'm on board. I'm on board with you flagging that as, as something that we'd like to think was part of his planning. Right. Especially with all of the things we know were part of his planning. I, and his whole timeline was like well thought out. So I'm, I feel like he did this on purpose. Like the time that he was getting in and out of countries, especially for this, but you know, I, but yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think I think it was a good spot. Okay, let's cut it here. Uh, we've covered all the jackals' planning and execution up until the hotel sequence near the French border. This is a good time to take a break and go back in time and take a look at the French and British intelligence agencies that are trying to stop him. As we'll see, they've got their work cut out for them, beginning as they do with virtually no information. So that's what we're going to do in part two. We'll track the investigation up until the two timelines intersect, which, again, that's at the hotel sequence. That's the first time that he shows up as an actual blip on their radar, and it's also when he becomes aware that he's being pursued. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback, we're always trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.